You're listening to Conversations with John Anderson, featuring James Orr. Dr. James Orr is Associate Professor of Philosophy of Religion at the Faculty of Divinity, Cambridge University in the United Kingdom. He's the author of several books and many academic articles. His expertise is in the philosophy of religion, and he is a regular commentator on issues facing Britain and the West more generally today. He's also the UK chairman of the Edmund Burke Foundation. James, it's terrific of you to join me. We've known one another for a while, partly because we were on the organising committee for the ARC conference in London, but many of my listeners will actually know you because they will have heard you or seen you interacting with the extraordinary Jordan Peterson and a group of others, including Oz Guinness and Dennis Prager, talking through the importance in this day and age of the Torah, the early books of, uh, of, of uh, the Old Testament in setting up what might be called the ideas of covenantal governance, cooperation, subsidiarity, uh, a societal structure that works and, and gives people human opportunity for human flourishing and, and advancement. So that must have been a very interesting time, a group of you gathered together. And as I say, many of our listeners will have heard, mm. heard those or mm. seen them or mm. both. It was a great privilege to be involved John, uh, just as it's a great privilege to, to be with you today. And, and, and these sort of long form content is just a wonderful way to take a deep text, take a difficult problem and to chew it over at great length. And in the case of the Exodus um, discussions, I think we went for not far off 40 hours, um, which were edited down, of course. I mean, I remember on the second day, we were still on chapter three. Uh, there are 40 chapters in Exodus. And I said to Jordan, look, go and put the Israelites into the desert for 40 years. You're going to have us in this studio for 40 days. And uh, the, the, the Daily Wire team very uh, graciously agreed to a second series. So we, but we kept going and going and going because, the, as you say, the, the, the early books of, uh, are, of the Old Testament, Hebrew scriptures, are, are, are limitless. They are depthless. And... Uh, uh, both in themselves, just uh, the, the, they are conceptually fascinating. Um, they are fascinating to the secular mind, as we discovered, because not every many of the viewpoints around that table took a took a took a sort of secular perspective. Um, uh, but also in their applicability to the modern age, um, uh, as you say, this question questions of covenant over contract. This yeah. is this is a, an increasingly big question in in. So contract a narrow thing. Yeah. It's narrowly defined and mm. it's designed to make certain that you can get out of it to, now to put it in the negative pretty easily if you want to whereas a covenantal arrangement mm. entered into between people's mm. individuals or vast numbers of people mm. uh, and so forth it's all about cooperation it's all yes. about seeking the best for everyone yes it's all about an attitude of mind that yeah. says we'll all pitch in mm. i think that's right i think there's something intrinsic to the notion of covenant that involves promise and involves a dimension of unilaterality. That is to say, contract. You know, God can't enter into contracts, but he can make covenants, he can make promises, he can, certain, he can certainly constrain himself, he can make, impose obligations on himself, 
Um, but there aren't any sort of contractual provisions you can enter with God and for God, and for God to remain God. Um, so there's a notion of promise. There's an, a notion of permanence, I think, to covenant, where there aren't sort of escape clauses <laughs> in yep. covenants. Um, and there's a sense of self-giving of, of a kind of, I suppose, a, a, a form of grace, a sort of gift. Uh, you covenant and you, you make a commitment, you bind yourself, uh, and that elicits the, the, the binding of another, uh, uh, the free, in, entering, entering freely into a covenantal agreement. And I think, of course, the question that looms if you, once you've moved from questions of social contract and the contractarianism that develops after Hobbes uh, and Locke and Rousseau in, in the uh, uh, 17th and 18th century, you shift towards, uh, if we start thinking about covenantalism, you do start thinking about the vertical covenant, which is, of course, where, where Exodus begins and Genesis begins in many ways, that the horizontal covenant emerges out of, is underpinned by, underwritten by, a vertical covenant. Uh, now, that's a much more difficult question to address in uh, an age that is uh, 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 as secular as ours, um, where religion has been, as it were, privatised. It is something that's been domesticated. Uh, religion is something to be conducted only between consenting adults behind closed doors. If you <laughs> must. If, if you absolutely must, and we'd rather you wouldn't, and we'd yeah. rather you didn't. Yeah. This is the great Rawlsian uh, system. Uh, John Rawls's theory of justice, 19, 1971, he says, you know, in order to achieve a maximally just society, we must bracket our, quote, comprehensive metaphysical commitments. Uh, and by that, of course, he includes contentious religious commitments, but in fact, far broader metaphysical commitments too. Metaphysical commitments that aren't obviously religious, but that are plainly philosophical, uh, about freedom, uh, about human nature, who we are as human beings, about our consciousness, about rationality, and so on. Those are plainly comprehensive metaphysical commitments that reasonable people can disagree about, and yet we're supposed to bracket those and then work out how to be a just society. Questions of justice itself, questions of equality, these are contentious questions that we're debating all the time in the seminar rooms in Rawls's Harvard or Parfit's Oxford. Well, these are very difficult times, and uh, it's important to have these debates. It really is, as we try to find a better way forward at a time of enormous self-doubt, even self-loathing. But we'll come back to that, because what I'd like to begin with is why you, as a very, very capable person, uh, a professional lawyer, uh, switched, really, into philosophy, uh, and in a very senior role now, you carry that forward at Cambridge University, presuming it wasn't a pursuit of great wealth, uh, I can't imagine that would have worked out too well. S what what not, drove well, you down that road? Well, financial wealth. There's time wealth. That, that there are other forms of wealth. Touche. Uh, Touche. Uh, uh, but, but uh, and I'm not sure about capable, but I was uh, privileged enough to have a, a wonderful education in the English system. The English schools are some of the best in the world, the English private schools. And I did lots of Latin and Greek, uh, which I found terrifying and deadly, to, to, and deadly boring to begin with. But it, it began to open up for me in my teenage years, and I started to read a little bit of Plato, and that carried on at university. So I, I was interested in philosophy, but I didn't think I was any good at it. In fact, I certainly wasn't any good at it. Uh, I was always intimidated by, by uh, people who, who did philosophy. I did, I did, so I did the bare minimum at university. I, had to do, I did classics, so you had to do some ancient philosophy. Um, the catalytic moment was, in fact, when I was working as a lawyer in, the, in, in London, in the city, the really catalytic moment was a, a conversion to Christianity. 
Uh, it wasn't a very bookish conversion. It was actually a, a, a pretty. It was a sort of series of Damascene moments. Um, at the end of which, I came to the view that God was real, uh, and that the Christian uh, revelation was the truest and most authentic uh, uh, revelation of of God. Uh, so that immediately set me on the path to looking for the sort of philosophical scaffolding uh, for, the, for these experiences. And that, that's what got me into contemporary philosophy. That's where I started reading philosophy at the weekends, and uh, it was soon every other, you know, every other weekend, and it was soon every weekend. And I would, I would nip across from my offices at, at, in Freshfields at, on Fleet Street to the King's College London Library uh, in the evenings and at the weekends. Uh, and after a few months of this, my wife turned to me and said, uh, your brother's negotiating for Saturday afternoons at Stamford Bridge to watch Chelsea. You're negotiating to go to a university library and sit with some dusty books <laughs> and read them. You know, this is not normal behavior. <laughs> have you considered that you may have a vocation or you may have uh, that this, 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 this is something that you may want to take further? I, well, most wives would have been <laughs> horrified at the thought that I'd walk away from a a fancy lawyer job and, and into, into to becoming a student again. But that's exactly what I did at the age of 30 with a young family until I went up to Cambridge uh, and entered, uh, entered a pretty uncertain time as a graduate student, but a glorious time. I was very fortunate to, to be accepted in the Faculty of Divinity at Cambridge as a graduate student where I now teach full time. And I had a brief period in, in Oxford after my graduate studies with the great Nigel Bigger uh, at Christchurch. And that's when we really started to get forced into the culture wars uh, and the empire wars in particular. We could talk about that in, in a bit, perhaps. Um, and then I went, ended up back, back in Cambridge. But the, the, the key moment for me for, towards philosophy was, was faith. Uh, that, that, was the, uh, that, that was what instilled in me the sort of intellectual restlessness about, you know, with, uh, about the fundamental questions. So were the likes of Bertrand Russell wrong when he implied that Christian faith was somehow incompatible with <laughs> philosophy. Can you be both? Yeah. Wittgenstein has a wonderful remark somewhere where he says that all of Russell's books, of course he knew Russell very well, all of Russell's books should be divided into two. And you should have the black books and the red books. And I can't remember which way around it is, but the, the black books everyone must read, and the red books are complete nonsense, and then no, don't, don't touch them. And I think a lot of Russell's writings on religion should be were, were in, in Wittgenstein's view as well in, uh, on the sort of latter half, the kind of post-1918, 1919 phase of Russell's life. Um, it, it's hard to know where to start explaining what's wrong with the thought that philosophy and religion or faith are intrinsically incompatible. I think the belief that they are uh, is itself a symptom of this tendency, uh, of the tendency of all of us in the modern age to think that all ideas begin, began roughly 100 years ago and everything before that was darkness and, and confusion. Um, and there is a tendency in, in contemporary analytic Anglophone philosophy to think that Bertrand Russell and G.E. Moore started philosophy at the high table of Trinity College Cambridge in somewhere around you know, October 1903. And everything up to that was just you know, to be an embarrassment to be forgotten. But of course, Philosophy goes right back to the dawn of time, the dawn of thought, the dawn of the beginnings of the human record. Even before Socrates, uh, you have thinkers like Anaxagoras and Thales and Xenophanes and so on who, who are doing philosophy. It's a sort of philosophy, it's a sort of natural science, and their answers are freighted with appeals to 
divinity. Uh, Socrates is put on trial, not for being an atheist, but for introducing new gods. Um, not even Epicurean. It's actually, it's very, very difficult to find in the ancient world, or late antiquity, or the medieval period, a philosopher who you could say is, uh, is an atheist, that is to say, repudiates all content to religious beliefs. And uh, uh, you know, even the Epicureans were committed to the existence of the gods. They, they just didn't, didn't think they were around anymore. <laughs> they, they got bored and gone off uh, and, and gone somewhere else. But actually finding an atheist pre, well, let's say pre-1600 is not very, not very easy. Even if you think of Anselm, Anselm when he's talking about, um, when he's trying to put the atheist perspective, has to quote scripture, has to quote the fictive character in the, in the Psalms, the fool who says in his heart that there is no God. He doesn't say, oh, those atheists <laughs> who claim that, that, that there is no God. I mean, it's, it's, it's an almost inconceivable, uh, inconceivable thought that, that, that there are such things. So atheism is, is, is a very new kid on the block, as it were. It's a, it's a, in the grand sweep of, uh, of, of Western history uh, uh, and in the grand the sweep of the world, uh, so both uh, diachronically and synchronically, as it were, uh, atheism, though it's got a sort of disproportionately vocal uh, 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 representation these days and over the last hundred years, is actually quite a curious, and I'd say quite sort of superstitious position, uh, one that requires the suspension of, uh, uh, the partial suspension of, of, of reason uh, and a kind of scepticism and agnosticism about all kinds of dimensions of human experience and reality. Uh, I sometimes call them the M words. I think I borrow, I borrow that from, from somebody else, but you think of uh, morality, uh, you think of, uh, think of music, think of mathematics, think of meaning, metaphysics it itself. These are all plainly fascinating domains about which intellig inte intelligible questions can be raised and, and answers given. That, are, that elude the dominant philosophical orthodoxies of our age, which, roughly speaking, is the view that all truths are scientific truths or reducible to scientific truths. This is the view sometimes called scientism or naturalism or sometimes physicalism, materialism. You know, it is the house philosophy of secular liberalism. Uh, but it can't cope with the M-words. It can't cope with mind. It can't cope with morality. It can't cope with uh, music or something irreducible can't even cope with mathematics. These are all, uh, these are all domains that, that you can't, can't be put under a microscope. <laughs> you can't do scientific tests on, uh, that the empiricist is going to miss. Um, and so, in a way, you know, atheism and, and reductive physicalism brings with it a, a, not just a, an impoverished view of religion, but an impoverished view of human nature and an impoverished view of reality itself. Would you say that uh, your Christianity has been more informed by your interest in philosophy, or would you say the other way around? It's a very difficult question because m many Christian claims, uh, many of the kind of most fundamental architectonic Christian claims, are plainly philosophical claims. God exists. That is a philosophical claim. It is op it's open to argument, uh, arguments in its favour, and it's open to arguments against it. Philosophical arguments, not just bland appeals to revelation or whatever. Um, uh, uh, Christ is uh, two natures in one person without confusion, change, division, or separation, as the Council of Chalcedon tells us. Uh, now, that's a doctrinal, creedal claim, but it's got to work philosophically. 
so how does it work philosophically? Well, we have to start thinking about well, what is a nature and what is a person? And th these are intrinsically philosophical problems that are with us still. Um, think of the old debate about, you know, uh, uh, can, can I be free to choose what I have for breakfast tomorrow morning if God already knows what I'm going to have for breakfast tomorrow morning? You know, there's a sort of, you know, does, if, if, if I'm really free, then God, God's knowledge is false about what I'm going to have for breakfast. If, if God's knowledge is fixed, then I have got no choice about what I have for breakfast. It's going to be the cornflakes. Now, there's a just, you know, that's very, that's the same argument as we, as we work with today in the, in the secular context between determinism, is it Darwin all the way down, or are we genuinely free on, on top of that? Um, in my own case, I, I think, to go back to your question, I actually started with, uh, it, it, my faith began, as it were, my conversion ex experiences were experiences, that is to say they were, they were didn't rely on books or ideas, um, but, but answered sceptical prayers. But I immediately went not into philosophy, but into the historicity of the New Testament. That was my first, that was my right. starting point. I had been fortunate enough, as I said earlier, to pick up Greek. And if you've got some classical Greek, then Koine Greek, the New Testament Greek, is just gloriously readable. Uh, all of the New Testament, except for Hebrews and Revelation, you could pretty much read, I could pretty much read um, a sight read. Um, and this was a revelation because the, there was, they were, the, new, the 27 sort of New Testament texts were both continuous with the texts I'd read from the same period in the first century and also very different. They were continuous in the sense that they were texts. They were documents from the first century. Um, and suddenly I was, you know, everything I'd done at, uh, in classics, and reading Tacitus, reading Suetonius, reading Caesar, all the tools that I applied were there, well, I said, well, why shouldn't I use the same tools on these documents? Uh, no, 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 no reason for sort of double standards and so on. So there was a continuity there, but there was a sharp discontinuity. Mainly, I noticed in the, the manuscript tradition. You know, when we're reading uh, Tacitus, for example, Tacitus is wonderful uh, annals. I mean, there's only sort of four of the. I mean, it's 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 pockmarked. I mean, it, it, it's it's there's hardly any. There's a lot big 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 chunks missing. And we have to sort of guess what happened in the uh, for, for a lot of the lot of the emperors um, because the manuscript tradition is so poor, um, uh, or even Homer. You know, the, the, the Iliad gets to us only via a tiny, tiny number of manuscripts from late antiquity. In the case of the New Testament, you had I realised you had five thousand Greek five thousand uh, Greek manuscripts in the New Testament, ten thousand Latin, a whole load of other languages too. So that was the that there was a sort of sharp discontinuity, a very busy so-called apparatus criticus at the bottom, which shows you all the different, um, all the different readings uh, which, have been, which textual critics look at to try and get the exact text. That was, a, that was a revelation. So it started with historicity claims and thinking hard about um, the historical case for the life, death and resurrection of Jesus and the early Christian movement. And then I had lunch one day with a friend in the city uh, and I sort of Told, told him what I was reading, and I you know, laid out some of these sort of historicity arguments, and um, particularly for the resurrection. And uh, he said, uh, yeah, it's fine. I don't believe that. But, I mean, it's, I said, well, look, it's, it, there's more evidence for it than, say, that you know, Caesar crossing the Rubicon, um, or for the Battle of Actium. Why wouldn't you, you know, take these seriously, at least the sort of... He said, well, um, dead people stay dead. Uh, I said, so if I showed you a video, it was 20 years ago, a VHS or a DVD, of 
Easter morning. The, the, you know, the rock being rolled back and you know, actually, I actually saw it. You, you, so what I, wouldn't, I would disbelieve, disbelieve the DVD. I said, if I put you in a time machine and we went back <laughs> to the cave and we were there, somehow, would you believe it? He said, no. Dead people take it. Now, I since discovered this is Hume's argument, you know, that, that the, the, the evidence of one senses should be doubted if the uniform uh, uh, custom of uh, human experience um, denies it. A little bit more, more complicated than that. I, what that lunch taught me, I left that lunch realizing that the historical approach to faith could only really be a hobby. What really mattered was the deeper philosophical claims. That is to say, if you were not willing to accept, if you're, it started with your priors, and if your priors were all truths are scientific truths, the naturalistic priors, then of course dead people stay dead. Uh, those are the scientific truths. And no historical evidence, certainly not evidence from 2,000 years ago, however strong it is relative to other historical documents from 2,000 years ago, is going to be dispositive. So I realized that the, truth, the, the real work would need to be done at the philosophical level. How do you raise those priors? So you're not going to find any kind of Christian evidence is compelling or Islamic evidence is compelling or Sikh evidence is compelling if you haven't got a prior th commitment to theism being possible, naturalism being false. And that will raise the probability and make it easier, well, certainly, make it more reasonable or at least not, will put you in a position where you're not ruling out a priori um, the possibility of the claims being, of other non-naturalistic claims being made in, test, in, in documents like the New Testament being true. It's certainly surely the case that uh, just as no one can stand and say science can disprove God, it's also the case that you can't find anything in the historical records that can be, if you like, proven to be wrong. Mm, yes, that's right. I mean, that's because science studies the repeatable. Scientific truths are true in virtue of their having been repeated empirically and through, through uh, the hypothetical deductive model. And history relies on the unrepeatable, the, the, you know, the, once, the once and only once. Um, of course, we look for patterns in history. We look for ways they might rhyme. But we are, uh, uh, we're, we're dealing with a different category of human inquiry. And to go back to your question, I mean, not only, uh, uh, I mean, I, my view is that not only is there, I don't think there's such a thing as a scientific proof. And in fact, I don't think science can prove itself. Um, when you're using the language of proof, you're really only using the language of mathematics. The only proofs you get are in mathematics. It, you know, if, give you an example, if, if we were to say, if we were to find out that children were reading physics textbooks from the 1920s, we'd be worried. Why? because physics textbooks of the 1920s don't contain proofs. They contain the best scientific theorizing of the 1920s. But theorizing, that, theor that thinking develops. It develops and develops. Mathematical textbooks, well, we'd be delighted if children were <laughs> working with mathematical textbooks from the 1920s. Why? Because you know, mathematics, you, there are theorems in mathematics. Uh, there are only theories in science. And, and science is falsifying itself all the time. And science can't prove itself because science itself relies on uh, prior truths being true. Uh, notoriously, science relies on mathematical truths being true. Um, and mathematical truths are not scientific truths. 
that uh, scientific truths presuppose mathematical truths, uh, and the more science we do, the more physics we do, the more mathematical it gets. Um, uh, uh, but but uh, mathematics uh, is even even more than history. You know, history at least happens once. Mathematics doesn't happen at all, and yet it's always and everywhere true. That two plus two equals four. Um, you can't date it. Those truths are necessarily true. They don't begin to be true. They don't cease to be true. They are rock solid truths. They're, they are. They, you can have. You can develop proofs from them, and they're more rock solid than any scientific conjecture uh, uh, or any scientific theory that's ever been that's ever been formulated. You've spoken of what you call a historical shift, as people have stopped even asking the big questions of we've been talking about mm -hmm. and decided against belief, broadly speaking, in the West. You have seen a lot of shifts and one that you've nailed in a very interesting way, and I'm quoting, uh, it's been from sin to syndrome. Mm. Yes. Uh, yeah. Sin being the idea of wrongdoing, which is one of the great objections people have, of mm. course, uh, to the Bible. I don't know how you explain evil if you don't think there's sin. Mm. People don't think it's very clearly, but understandably, I suppose, there's a reaction against the idea mm. that I might be myself mm. to blame for a lot of the world's ills. Mm. Um, now we've had this shift from a Christian society, you're saying, to a therapeutic society. Mm. What would you say is a therapeutic society? Mm. How is it manifesting mm. itself? Mm. Why is it problematic to yeah. use a term yeah. that's bandied around a lot. Yes, I mean, I, I think that's right. I, I, and I can't even, I'm not even sure that phrase is mine, sin to syndrome. I might have picked it up somewhere, but it captures that shift very, very nicely from a sense of moral, moral culpability, which presupposes moral agency. And I think culpability and blame and sin, they're not nice words these days, but in fact, they're words that do belong to a sort of conceptual web of nice things, uh, of things that have always been recognized to be important. Uh, to recognize somebody as having committed wrongdoing rather than simply being the victim of uh, some pathology is to treat that person as free and rational. And Kant, I don't agree with Kant about much, but Kant is right that at least part of what human dignity consists in is freedom and reason. So to treat somebody as a sinner is to treat them as somebody who is free and who is mature and rational. Um, to treat them as a patient um, in the grip of a syndrome, I think, is not to treat them with their full humanity and dignity. Worse, it is, to coin another fashionable word, disempowering to say that somebody is in the grip of a pathology, a syndrome, rather than a sin. Why? Well, if you've committed a sin, you can seek forgiveness. Certainly within the Christian traditions and, and, and other religious traditions, there are mechanisms, salvific mechanisms, the mechanisms for absolution and repentance and social recognition of second chances as well as condemnation. If you've got a disease, if your wrongdoing is a, is, is a symptom of something that is wrong with you or wrong with your mind, you're stuck with it, really, or at least it's much less obvious how you get rid of it. Do you medicate your way out of it? Uh, well, yes, sometimes. Do you uh, find a therapeutic way out of it? Well, yes, sadly, sometimes. But most of the time, these are problems that are fixed. I have this condition, uh, and there's no way I can sort of get out of it. 
And so, you know, crimes start to be treated as diseases and criminals or wrongdoers start to be treated as patients. And the state then turns into not that which gives expression to social condemnation through uh, punishment and retribution, but rather the state becomes a kind of omnicompetent therapist. And that's a very dangerous development in my view, because we, we know that our moral instincts, shared moral instincts, help us to track moral truth, broadly speaking. There's a moral consensus in every society. Classifying pathologies, classifying diseases, mental, particularly psychological diseases, are, as it were, um, it, that, that is a very tricky business. You need to get in the experts. Who's in control of the experts? The state is in control of the experts. And so you actually move from a position of sort of moral consensus, and I think democracy depends upon, you know, the, the plumber that's leaving school at 16 having just as much uh, just as capable and fully functioning uh, moral, moral capacity for moral judgment as a, a you know, fancy professor with, with multiple ethics degrees. Um, so we shift there to uh, morality, moral judgment becomes a sort of question of technique and expertise. And that, I think, is a, is, is a disturbing development. And you see this with sort of, you know, the language of health and safety, you see it as sort of invoking and justifying um, very clear erosions of, of civil liberties. Uh, and I think one of the big, you know, we've talked, and I know you've talked with your guests on previous podcasts, John, about this, you know, left and right not quite being the correct prism to understand the public square with through anymore. And I think that's absolutely right. And the question, I think, is what are the other spectrums and axes? And I think at least one of them is... Um, uh, is, is risk and safety or freedom and safety. How do, that's a, that's a trade-off. Clearly we can't just uh, allow total freedom in a way that undermines in serious ways public safety. On the other hand, it's obvious that we can't just live in lockdown the whole time, that there are more important things in life than the avoidance of death. Uh, we're going to have to walk across the street even though there is a, you know, a minimal risk that we might get run over and so on. So how do we find that trade-off? Um, and I think that's going to be that, that axis, as it were, of public disagreement is, is emerging more and more in recent years, uh, partly driven by, by plagues, uh, 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 but also driven, I think, by the, um, the transposition from the, the move from sin to syndrome and the language of the psychologizing of, of, of medicine. Um, my own view is that mental health is, a, is an unfortunate phrase. Uh, I, I know what people mean by it, but I think it's, it's a metaphor that's got out of control. Uh, there's physical, there's, I don't think there's any such thing as physical health. Uh, all health is physical health, in my view. Um, mental health, what is mental health? Men, the phrase mental health implies that there is a medical science, as it were, that is focused on the mind as an object of scientific inquiry, like a bone or right. a cancer yep. or a cancerous cell. If that's true, then the champions of mental health uh, as a phrase, as a literal phrase, a non-metaphorical phrase, have solved one of the biggest problems in the history of philosophy, namely the mind-body problem. And the mind-body problem just is the problem <laughs> of, is the mind an object, a scientific object? Is the mind the brain? Now, my view, and that's maybe not a popular view in, in contemporary 
philosophy, but certainly I'd say the overwhelming consensus of, of, of philosophers in, in, in the West has been that, yeah, that when we're talking about soul or mind or consciousness, we are talking about something that's real and not fully reducible to underlying neurophysiological states. Now, maybe that's right, maybe that's wrong. It's an open question. The phrase mental health closes that question. It says we've settled that question. We've, we, we've settled the question of whether or not the mind is something that can be both explored by scientific means and solved and addressed, as it were, cured by scientific means. And I think that, that's, a, that's, a, that's a deep conceptual confusion, a category mistake embedded in that phrase, which is, leads to all kinds of dialogues of the death and policy confusion, because we start to then think of we start to then think of um, you know, psychological suffering in terms that are the same as uh, physical suffering. So we'll look at sort of you know, cancer rates uh, and waiting lists, and then we'll look at um, the rates and waiting lists for generalized anxiety disorder. GAD is one of these phrases a student explained to me the other day, which I think is um, you know, just being a, bit, a little bit anxious, you know. So this is, this is a, a deep problem, and it's one that I think disconnects us. Maybe this is accelerated by the digital revolution, but it disconnects us from and renders problematic, as it were, ordinary features of human experience. Um, I asked a, a young person the other day to explain to me what... Um, uh, what, what, was it? what was the phrase? I think it was uh, social, pho social phobia. So what is social phobia? Well, it's, it, it, it turned out that it was just anxiety. Um, I've got GAD, one person said, generalised anxiety disorder. I said, well, wh wh you know, what, why do you think you've got GAD? He said, well, I, you know, I, I, I don't know, I'm just feeling very stressed. And I pointed out that the student had very important exams in, in, in a few months' time. I said, do, do you think that's why you've got GAD. <laughs> and she said, yes, uh, probably, that's definitely, I'm, I'm worrying a lot about my exams. I said, well, uh, well, not only is that normal, it's, it's actually good. You know, it's, it's good to feel anxious about, uh, about your exams because you're going to do better. And it's a totally normal, uh, non-pathological response to a, an ordinary uh, human scenario. Um, there was a study done a few years ago, uh, a fascinating article by a group of psychologists trying to explore at what point grief becomes PTSD. And it's fascinating trying to be watching these experts trying to, <laughs> trying to fix the appropriate limits on grief. So, you know, they were trying to settle the question of, you know, how long is it reasonable for you to feel grief over the death of a loved one? Uh, you know, at which point does it just cease to be acceptable? At what point does grief turn into a pathology? Well, my view is that just there is no answer. There should you shouldn't even be looking for an answer to that question. It's going to be different for everyone. It's going to be different for everyone, and you're not going to be able to quantify it. And it's none of your business. You know, you, <laughs> leave me. You know, leave leave me alone with all your your fancy acronyms. Uh, and if I'm once I've got PTSD, then I'll. Mm. If you start calling it PTSD, then I guarantee that I'll have that longer uh, for uh, that than 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 my grief may have lasted had I not pathologized it. Just following this through a little bit from a, from a sort of a more layman's perspective, I suppose, it seems to me that with the loss of the idea of sin, and as you've said, that's tied to agency. If you're fully human and, dignity. and fully engaged, you need to have a mechanism for dealing with the fact that there is evil. You need then to move to the point where we're all capable of it 
and life isn't a battle between good and bad people because we're all a mixture. Mm. That was a traditional understanding. And that led to concepts like, conf- you know, fessing up, facing reality. Mm. You've got it wrong. Mm. You need to apologise. Mm. And the notion of forgiveness. Mm-hmm. And it seems to me that a therapeutic society, actually because it can't deal with guilt mm. and fessing up mm. and forgiveness, mm turns out to be anything but therapeutic. It's mm. actually quite cruel. Mm. And for young people today, the idea of cancel culture, the great terror is you can't be forgiven yeah. if you've done something that is wrong, mm. even if it's not wrong, frankly, mm. in the eyes of you know, mm. the people around you and they cancel you, yeah. you're not going to be forgiven. There's no redemption and it's not even going to be forgotten. Mm-hmm. So a therapy mm-hmm. culture turns out I'm just testing this by you yeah. to see whether I sort of got yeah. a bit of a handle on yeah. what you're saying. Mm-hmm. Turns out actually to be a very cruel one. It denies agency, it denies forgiveness, it denies a sort of um, attitude mm-hmm. of deep commitment mm-hmm. to accepting others mm-hmm. in the end. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that's absolutely right. And and you know if 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 everything. If everything is therapeutic, then, 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 as it were, nothing is therapeutic. That is to say, if, if everything is, is, can be explained in just sort of psychological terms, then, then, then we do sort of start to lose our grip on being able to work out, well, what genuine instances of psychological suffering might be. And I think there is a cruelty to it, yes, because there is an idea, there is this sense that once you've got, as it were, a psychological condition that you can't, it, you can't really escape from it. Um, there is no cure, there's no medicine, there's medication, and that opens up you know, the pharmaceutical solutions. Uh, and, uh, and I take very seriously left-wing critiques of big pharma being deeply complicit in the triumph of the therapeutic. Um, uh, and because it, it renders individuals uh, uh, dependent, increasing numbers of uh, of individuals dependent on uh, on on big pharma, and uh, certainly the rates. There was a report uh, quite recently in in the UK showing staggering levels of um, uh, 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 d- consumption of antidepressants, particularly mm. up in, you know up in Scotland, and uh, this this and amongst our children. Yeah, I, yes, absolutely right, absolutely right, mm. and so this um, this this way of and that comes from the assumption that if somebody's got suffering from poor mental health then there must be some solution to it that's analogous mm. to um, uh, the solutions that we offer to bad physical health in medicine. Now it, it, it's not the same thing though, you know, psychological suffering mm. is a qualitatively different kind of thing. It's, 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 not, it's, not, it's still suffering, I mean nobody's suggesting that, they don't for a moment want to say that Psychological suffering isn't real. I'm simply saying that framing it by analogy, by metaphor, that then gets concretized to, um, uh, with respect to the phys- physical medical, medical sciences, introduces all sorts of problems, one of which is the only real solution to this is something that's analogous to physical cures, pills. Yeah. So, so here we have a situation where I think you and I are broadly agreeing here. Uh, you're at a level well above me, I have Nonsense. to say, James. But, but let's, let's, let's try and tease out something here. Uh, we're saying that, in fact, it seems that a therapeutic culture is, is one in which um, it turns out that many modern attitudes 
are hurtful and even harmful to people's well-being. But that therapeutic society now, if you like, which, which is, is, is pretty widespread, it's pretty thick uh, through our society, mm. they're saying we're the ones, we Christian believers, mm. when we talk about sin and guilt and um, conscience in the way that we do, mm. we're the ones mm. that can be hurtful and even harmful. Mm. So we've got a real problem. Mm. And in my own country, this is manifesting as a, in a debate over religious freedoms. Mm. Uh, mm. The term itself is interesting. Mm. Uh, do you find freedom through religion or do you find freedom by, if you like, pushing it back into the private square mm. and, if possible, obliterating it altogether? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We've got ourselves in a mess, haven't we? Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Absolutely right. Uh, um, and I've been tracking that debate over religious freedom quite, quite a lot in, in Australia and, and, and uh, indeed, indeed elsewhere. Um, I mean, I, you know, it, part of the difficulty here, I think, is expanding. Again, it's connected to what we were saying earlier about the psychologizing of absolutely everything. Um, you know, with John Stuart Mill, the classical liberal has his no harm principle. You know, my, my, uh, my freedom to do w what I want uh, ends with my, you know, fist at your, on, your, on your face, as it were. I mean, I, no harm, no physical harm can be should be uh, should be inflicted, but within that, I am my aut autonomous self, capable of. Uh, uh, I'm free to exercise um, myself. Uh, I'm free to take whatever decisions I want and to, to, to act on them as I see fit. Once the notion of harm is psychologized, as you say, then all bets are off. Uh, the, if if you then wed that to the no harm principle, then you've got a recipe for tyranny, because the problem of psychologizing harm is that it's not at all obvious what evidence against there having been a harm, there, there being a, a harm uh, having been committed, it, it looks like, and there, there simply isn't any objective. What is the, 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 the dispositive evidence is the subjective self-reported claim that I am harmed, I feel hurt, I feel offended. Uh, there's no jury that can inspect evidence and reach and deliberate uh, uh, over whether or not uh, that, that claim is true. Uh, because psychological harm is by definition uh, something to which only the subject uh, has private privileged access. Um, and it doesn't matter, you go to Harley Street and you go to some of the best psychologists in the world, it's not going to give you, it's not going to be able to have access to that, to that, to, to those private states. Now that's a uh, that changes the sort of incentive structures in very in really fundamental ways. It's a recipe for tyranny because it, you can just now apply classical liberalism, you know, psychologized and tweaked, and you've got a recipe for tyranny because you've effectively uh, the, the, the society starts to move at the same pace as the most uh, most offended. Well, it has to stop and put everything down as uh, to um, as the most offended person in in the in, in the class. You know, it has a tantrum or, 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 or screams, and now we don't know if it's veridical or not. We don't know if, if, there's, if, it, if it's true or not, but if, if, if the person knows that, that society's going to stop or the institution's going to respond, um, then there's, a, there's obviously uh, an incentive structure in place to you know, use and abuse the system. Um, so it is, it, it, it's, 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 obviously it's a profound, it's a profound concern. Um, and of course, these things have a habit. Psychological conditions, psychological um, you know, syndromes have uh, have the habit of being 
you know, self-fulfilling uh, and, and, and capable of being spread with extraordinary speed through mimesis and mimetic effects, as we know. Um, this is sometimes called the, the, the Werther effect after Goethe's The Sorrow of the Young Werther or the Marilyn Monroe effect. Uh, this is a very good example of where the no-harm principle breaks down on the question of suicide. Now, suicide seems to be the paradigmatically private act, the private, purely private exercise of my free will over my own life. No one can tell me not to, and so on. This is the cl classic sort of liberal case for decriminalizing suicide. Um, but of course, as we know, after the Sorrows of the Young Goethe was a huge hit in Goethe in the late 18th century, and Marilyn Monroe, and Marilyn Monroe died, and so on, these these have enormous mimetic effects. They're not purely private decisions, uh, especially if you have a, a public status. Um, there's a very powerful mimetic effect. Um, I remember when I was a, a postdoctoral fellow in, in Oxford, I lived on a staircase and I would go in and every morning I would see some well-meaning, a well-meaning poster uh, from the, uh, you, you know, the college nurse with an enormous question mark on it. And underneath it would say, worried, depressed, feeling low, you know, we're here to help. And uh, it was a you know, nice thing to do, but I would walk in very chirpy every morning and uh, then I'd look at the poster and think, well, gosh, actually, maybe I'm not feeling all right. <laughs> you know, I, actually, there, there, was, there is that, that, that little problem I'm worried about. Maybe I'm not worrying about it enough, you know, and so on. It's a, so there's a sort of self-fulfilling um, um, effect and there's a mimetic effect. And so these things can spread very, very quickly um, and become real, they become real. Um, and uh, so it is, it's, a, it's a deep, deep difficulty, and it's not at all clear how one emerges from it either, because um, one doesn't want to belittle or trivialize it, um, and one doesn't want to, you know, in a, in a way, you know, Wittgenstein says famously, a picture hold, has, holds us captive. And as it were, the therapeutic as a sort of, the architect, the conceptual architecture of the therapeutic is so sort of structured modern culture that it, it holds us captive. It's hard to see how we can break out. There are bunkers, and I think um, religious communities are bunkers because they can speak, as it were, the old language, the language from the, the, the and, and, and they are communities that tend to have the antibodies, as it were, uh, to use another medical metaphor, the antibodies to the therapeutic, to the therapeutic culture. And, and also recognize, I mean, Christianity has certainly been here before. I mean, if you look at the sort of philosophies of late antiquity, this idea of philosophy as a way of life, and Stoicism as a way of life, Epicureanism as a way of life, Pythagoreanism as a way of life. You know, philosophy was like religion in that sense. You know, if you're a Pythagorean, you were a vegetarian, and that's because you had certain beliefs about the transmigration of souls, and it was both a religious, Pythagoras was both the leader of a religious cult, and also a brilliant mathematician, and plainly a philosopher. And they were, you know, they were, as it were, therapeutic. We would think, I mean, it's a Greek word, therapeia, the, the caring as a sort of, and, and the caring of the psyche, the therapeia of the psyche, a sort of looking after of the soul. This was a classical pagan idea that Christianity was perfectly well aware of and defied. And, in, and it introduced a rival, a rival scheme that in, you know, eventually won out, um, and which saw... Uh, and didn't, which didn't see suffering as intrinsically wrong, as it always intrinsically negative, understood that suffering could be, it could be virtuous, it could be a good, 
this is a profoundly countercultural, uh, indeed scandalous thought to the pagan mind, that, that, that suffering could, as it were, be generative, could be freighted with meaning, uh, that it wasn't the, wasn't the end of the world, as it were. Um, but we have got to that point where, you know, so we're beyond Nietzsche, you know, this Nietzsche's whatever, uh, uh, whatever doesn't kill you makes you, makes you stronger, uh, whatever doesn't kill you makes you weaker, is the idea now, you know, anything. We must, we must make sure that we are um, as protected as possible. Um, but we know that actually exposure to risk and danger is a recipe for psychological resilience. Um, there's the famous study of the kids here in London and during the Blitz, um, the, 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 the contrasting studies over time on a whole wide range of outcomes of the kids who grew up in the Blitz and the kids who were in London during the Blitz and the kids who were evacuated to Scotland. And on every single outcome, every single measure, the Blitz kids were more resilient psychologically than the, than the kids who'd been evacuated. That's interesting. I, I once had a, I have to say a very dear friend of mine, I was complaining bitterly about being attacked in the media by uh, someone back in Australia. And I said, I felt like I was suffering. And this good friend said to me, if you weren't suffering, John, I want to tell you, you'd be insufferable. Because <laughs> it's keeping you, you know, from, from bloated ideas about yourself. And yes. There's a bit of truth in that. There is. There yeah. really is. Yeah. Um, but as you say, we live in an age that doesn't believe suffering is part of the human experience. We're about the first age yeah. that ever has. Things have been so comfortable. Mm. We have so much. Mm and yet it's not working. Can I just drill in? You, you, you touched on this idea of um, you know, do no harm. So I guess that's a bit of a progression, isn't it? You had the covenantal agreement mm. once uh, mm -hmm. that, that you know, as part of your faith, you would love your neighbor as yourself and you'd do unto them as you want it done unto them. And that sort of morphed into uh, you know, just sort of uh, keep out of their way, don't, don't visit any harm on anybody. In fact, it's very hard if you're living for yourself, very hard not to inflict harm on others. Mm. And as we've seen, uh, mm. we live in a culture where everybody's saying, someone has inflicted harm on me. Mm. That's at the heart of a therapeutic culture, it seems to mm -hmm. me. Mm. And so in a sense, exercising those freedoms that we've had in the West to live as we like, works only while ever it's conducted in a framework of responsibility and genuine commitment to others. Once it becomes selfish or disrespectful of others, freedom can, in fact, in itself become the, the very enemy of freedom. Yes. This I is the great paradox. Yeah. This is the great paradox that conservatives understand that, but the liberals, liberals can't cope with. There are plenty of other things that conservatives don't understand or can't, and can't cope with. Um, um, but, but this is the, the great paradox that, that total freedom leads to unfreedom, that if freedom is the thing you, you most value or most prioritise, then it's the last thing you'll actually get. Actually personally and in terms of the structures of society? At both levels. At so both let's levels? start with the personal. Just think of a relationship. Think yep. of the meaning that you, one's life is invested with through, through a, a strong lifelong friendship. Mm. A lifelong friendship brings with it constraints. Constraints on the sorts of things we will do mm. and say with respect to that person. Um, we don't even think of them as constraints um, because they are just trivially instrumental constraints on our freedom um, um, given the riches that flow from the friendship. Um, or consider at an even more basic level, uh, you know, just driving around 
driving through London. I mean, you're not, it's not actually that easy to drive you're, around London. Are you still London. allowed to do it, are you? At the moment, I think, who is allowed I think to drive our, our, dear leader, the, the, our dear leader has put so many restrictions on what you can and can't do, what you can and can't drive, that it's very, very, very difficult. But, I mean, f there is basically free-flowing traffic, and free-flowing traffic depends upon there being an incredibly elaborate system of rules and conventions and limits and, and constraints. It, it's those precise limits that liberate the traffic. And this idea that limits liberate is, it, it may seem paradoxical, but it's the most obvious thing in the world when you think yeah. about it. Liberalism can't cope with that, can't cope with limits. It's always chafing against limits. Um, it can't deal with, with, really, with, with any limits at all, because any limit seems to be, or can be construed as, and correctly as, a constraint on my freedom. Yeah. But you're not free no. once you turn it into license. No, absolutely. When we're literally born tied to, by a biological cord, to our mums. I mean, we're mm. born with this physical cord li limit. We're born into a dense web of unchosen obligations. And yes, maybe it's possible to cut free of those, those unchosen obligations over time. But you're not going to be able to live a fulfilling life if you don't pick up certain other obligations that you will agree to, 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 to abide by. Um, and so this is, you know, it, it's, you know, part of the difficulty of a political philosophy that m motivates and encourages individual freedom above all else is that it becomes pretty obvious in how we're moving from the private to the public. It becomes pretty obvious that the only possible policeman and guardian for my, the exercise of my individual freedoms against my fellow citizens is the state. Um, you know, if it's a non-state actor, then it's, it, it, it is an affront on my, my individual freedom. It's some other group of individuals doing it. Not, we, we, we all have to start turning towards a single leviathan, as it were, that is going to protect my freedoms. But once we get to that point, then we've got to the, we're lurching towards the very tyranny that liberalism set out trying to avert. Because the omnicompetent state is the, as the sole guarantor left of my individual freedoms once I've cut myself adrift from all the unchosen obligations that I might have, that I previously had to, to nation, to neighborhood, to family, to friends, to guilds, and so on and so forth. Uh, I still need something to secure my freedom, my, to enforce my contractual uh, rights and, and to protect my property rights and so on and so forth. And, and so uh, one becomes dependent, more and more dependent on, on, on the state uh, and that becomes the primary, the primary relationship and Burke's platoons disappear, civil society disappears, and then all of those intermediary institutions that make up the make up the fabric of certainly this country, and I think as Tocqueville saw in, in America, makes up the sort of what's so distinctive about, about American culture, all of that starts to fall away. Uh, I, uh, I think it might have been Charles Colson who said, it's either the conscience or the constable. <laughs> you know, the extent to which we exercise mm. sensible restraint yeah. and our freedoms wisely we won't need the constable to the extent that we don't. Mm. And you see it everywhere because, you know, I know as a former legislator, but it's only built up an incredible head of steam since then. 
the whole idea now that um, my freedoms are being impinged upon, I'm not being treated rightly, has to be addressed by more and more and more and more endless red tape and government intervention. Mm. The Colombian philosopher Nicolas Gomez de Vila uh, once said that dying societies accumulate laws like dying men accumulate remedies. Um, and it's often thought that a proliferation of regulation and laws and crime, uh, um, uh, criminal and, and, and civil codes are evidence of a, of a, of a, of a flourishing or sophisticated society. In fact, it's, I think, much more evidence of a society ill at ease with itself that has to con con compensate for the corrosion of public trust by, uh, through the constable in the form of, the form of law. Um, and so, I, I, and I think we are certainly seeing more and more of that, um, and it's, it's disquieting. In the end, the building will topple over. I wonder whether our modern obsession with freedom of speech, which so often centres on someone feeling offended or whatever, perhaps because people use social media unwisely and they cancel others and then they think, well, this free speech thing's no good, isn't creating, in fact, a far deeper problem that's being obscured, which is that we're not having really robust conversations that, little, you know, that can be completely depersonalised. They're about what sort of society we want to sort of have. What is the role of the individual versus the government? Um, you know, what sort of economic models should we, should we follow, what have you? The trivialisation, that, that, uh, some of my listeners might think that's an unfair word to use, but around the issues of freedom of speech, are obscuring the greater problem. We're not having the great debates anymore. Mm -hmm. I think that's true and false. I think it's, it's true in the sense that um, the legacy institutions are um, struggling to avoid a kind of sclerosis and groupthink. And I think that's true also of the established institutions of, of, of Western society. I think it's false in the sense that you are now seeing the emergence of a sort of digital ecosystem that is opening up opportunities for long-form discussions of the kind we're having now, and you exemplify so well in, in, this, in, the, in, your, in your podcasts, of really thinking hard about these, these questions and disseminating these discussions uh, on a scale that was previously unimaginable. Um, so I think there's, you know, it's easy to get, one can be pessimistic, but, but I think one should be, there's cause for optimism, optimism too. Um, in a way, in some ways, it's both, you know, the twilight of free speech and also sort of golden age uh, of free speech as, as well. Um, you know, I myself, you know, I've been in the trenches on certainly academic freedom and freedom of speech issues, but I've not had, I mean, I can't think of one occasion when I've had really... Uh, 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 my university tell me I can't say something or, or, or um, you know, threaten me with consequences of uh, ha having said something. There are sometimes, you know, processes and, uh, you know, loom and so on, but it's, it's, I've generally found it, found it okay. But it's true that within, um, you know, within sort of mainstream society, there are, there is this sense of walking on eggshells, of course. And I think the problem with groupthink I've said this before, that the, you know, the trouble with groupthink is that wrong think becomes evil think. That, that, that a sufficiently, once a minority, intellectual minority gets sufficiently small on a particular view, it becomes a very easy 
and obvious to demonize it. It's not just simply error, it's all dissent, it's, it's, it's evil, it's, it's, it, it's malevolent. Um, and uh, especially if the group, you know, group think is, is allied to you know, what everyone knows to be the case or uh, the evidence or whatever it might be. Um, and that's something we need to, and I think there's a sort of certain tipping point effect. So it, you know, it could be that you know, a public square where you've got a 70-30 split on a contentious issue is a healthy public square. I mean, even though there is, you know, there's, it's, it's a bit out of kilter. And, you, when, and then there's a sort of, maybe the difference between 75 and 25 on the issue is a difference between 30% being able to speak mm. out and 25% suddenly being completely you know, silent. This is very interesting. That, I mean, I, I would think the sweep of history's taught us, and I've certainly seen over my own lifetime, that very frequently the people who have the minority view, they may be very few in numbers, might be almost disregarded and written off as a nutcase's perspective, in fact, have turned out to be right, but their arguments aren't heard because they're so easily dismissed. Mm. Yes, that's absolutely right. I, I, I think that's, pro that's, a, that's a, it's a true dynamic, um, certainly in the, in the natural sciences. Um, and you, you, know, you think of the great, the great geniuses that the West has produced, they always, you know, typically started as a voice, a lone voice of one. Um, and so, you know, it's funny, you know, in the modern age, we're, we're kind of torn between a tyranny of the minority and a tyranny of the majority. Yeah. And we're sometimes, you know, it's the wisdom of crowds, sometimes it's the madness of crowds. Mm. And crowds can be both very wise and very mad. And it's not always clear how those, those, those work. But Yes, the basic principle that we should test received wisdom, however established it and consolidated it might seem, um, because received wisdom, to the extent that it's not just mathematical proofs, is always open to being tested. Uh, is always, you know, it's always possible that it might be wrong. Um, that that you know, trying to sort of close that down is um, is, is 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 I think a you know a recipe for for social sclerosis and you know Mill puts this very well this is these are the classic arguments for freedom of speech from the liberal perspective um, in cha chapter 2 of on liberty 1859 you know he, he, you know you might be wrong argument number 1 you might be wrong um, perfectly possible you're not going to know if you're wrong if you haven't exposed your your what your your views to uh, if you don't allow others freely to criticize you um, you know, argument number two, chances are you're partly right and partly wrong. <laughs> That's where most of us are partly right and partly wrong about everything. Um, and you're not, but you're not going to know which bits are right and which bits are wrong if you haven't, you know, put it through the sorting mechanism, which requires there to be people who are freely and without fear going to criticize and, and, and sort through your arguments and tell you which bits are right and which bits are wrong. And the third argument, my favorite, he who knows only his own side knows little of that. John Stuart Mill. John Stuart Mill, chapter two on liberty. That is to say, it's a very subtle point. Even if you're completely right, you're not really gonna know that you're right, or you're not really gonna feel the force of your right views if, you ha if they haven't been through the crucible of criticism, open, fair, free criticism scrutiny. And the, the, you know, all, all three of those arguments are, are I think, powerful. They've come under criticism, and in fact, as a conservative, you know, million liberalism has all kinds of problems for me. We've talked about the no harm principle, 
um, both psychologically applied and, and applied in the usual sense. But, but of course, you know, Mills on Liberty is a sort of manifesto for experiments in living, you know, motivating everyone to, you know, to, to, you know, to test the conventions and always to test the sort of, you know, received structures and, and, and established patterns of uh, family, faith, flag, uh, which I'm not particularly on board with. I mean, I want, that, I want to live in a society in which people who want to conduct experiments in living are, are free to do so, um, but I don't like living in it. I'm, I'm not keen on a society where those people are, as it were, lionised and those experiments in living are seen to be what all must do on leaving, you know, on, on attaining freedom and uh, uh, on, on leaving university or whatever. Those, the sort of, you know, the 60s, uh, uh, the 60s approach, I think, uh, it is not, it, not, not, not wise, but Mill has a lot, of, lot, lot to say about, you know, to, 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 the, to our modern problems, uh, certainly within council culture and, and, and over, over freedom of speech, um, and, uh, I, you know, as do many others. But these are, the, the, you know, the debates are happening. Certainly in Britain, I feel, uh, in the university context and actually more broadly in the public square, um, there are, if not in the legacy media institutions, there are now disruptive agents in the media landscape, in the institutional landscape, um, perhaps not so much in the party political landscape, sadly, um, but of, of um, you know, non-conform expressions of profoundly non-conformist opinion. Um, I think this is especially true of the debate between uh, trans uh, supporters of trans ideology and the gender critical feminists. You know, I think. Uh, that the, the British gender-critical feminists have modelled how respectful civil disagreement that presupposes freedom of speech and freedom of conscience and academic freedom it can be done and can actually um, lead to uh, you know a, 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 a healthy public square um, and I think that the same is the same I think is true probably of debates over race too. I think generally speaking, provided we're not trying to import um, sort of neuralgia over, over race from the United States and transpose it into the UK context, I think generally speaking, you know, apart from maybe in 2020 uh, where we were doing just, just that importing, I think generally speaking we have had, um, we've had you know, better debates over, over race and heritage and, and history. Of course there have been flashpoints Generally speaking, mm. it's been, I think, you know, often very difficult, but um, you know, generally informed and fair and, and, and clarifying. And whether that will continue to be the case is, it's not at all, it's not at all clear. Um, but I feel that the, the public square is in a better state of health relative to the United States, certainly, and that where it's uh, where we're, things are going wrong. It, it can generally be attributed to us um, <laughs> uh, uh, us in, importing problems from the United States, and I, you know, I've said this before somewhere that um, you know it, it's great. I'm, I've been a Brexiteer since I was 13. I grew up in Brussels. I know wherever I speak. Um, you know, wonderful that we have reclaimed our political sovereignty from Brussels. But there's no point in regaining our political sovereignty from Brussels if we're going to surrender our cultural sovereignty to. Washington, New York, Harvard, and Silicon Valley, and uh, as it, there's there's no point in in becoming a free and sovereign nation again with respect to the European Union if we're just going to be a sort of colonial satrapy of the global American empire. 
amen to that. Uh, I think that Britain has played an incredibly positive role net, in net terms, if you like, uh, in, in, if you like, building a civilised approach to living with one another. And it'd be a great shame to see it not return to a leadership role in that regard. But one of the flashpoints uh, that you used that term a moment ago that I think is really deeply concerning to any thoughtful observer centres on the outrageous attack by Hamas uh, on um, Israel and the rapid emergence that there are many in the West who loathe Israel uh, and who are prepared to turn at the very least a surprisingly blind eye to what Hamas did and the evil that it represented. And you made a very interesting comment, as I understand it, you tweeted at one stage, import the Arab world, become the Arab world. I'd be very interested to know what you, you meant by that, mm. if you could mm. just mm. fill us well, in. Uh, uh, I was asked by a colleague to clarify this uh, tweet the other day, and I refused to clarify it because uh, I didn't, I, I said to clarify it would be to uh, assume that it was in need of clarification. Uh, there were some bad faith uh, misreadings of, of it that, uh, uh, that, that created quite a, quite a fuss. Um, uh, yeah, so, I mean, it was simple, really. I, I you know, if you, uh, uh, if you bring in, if there are large, large numbers of un uh, unchecked immigration at scale, without any clear accompanying policy or culture of assimilation, uh, which is the case if you are, have a doctrinaire commitment within government to multiculturalism, uh, you are simply going to replicate the ethnic, religious, tribal tensions of the people you bring in. When you cross, you know, you cross through passport control at Heathrow, you're here as, a, 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 as an economic migrant for the, for the first time, you don't say, your, all the views that you grew up with don't suddenly disappear and transmute, transmute themselves magically into the values that we've associated with, with Britain over, 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 the, over the centuries. And so, you know, let's do a thought experiment to, on this. I mean, imagine that Nigeria had imported two million Irishmen picked at random in, you know, in the 1960s. Uh, if they had import, imported the Irish world they would have become the Irish world if they had also said, there's your Irish ghetto, you do your Irish thing, don't worry about Nigeria, we're just going to sort of keep an eye on you, do your Irish stuff, Irish pubs, we love Ireland, you know, Ireland, Ireland, Ireland. It, you, you would have replicated the troubles in Belfast in Lagos. Um, and so that's what I meant by the comment. Uh, if you, you know, that's why we shouldn't, be, shouldn't have been surprised to see within hours of the terrorist attacks on October the 7th, with the blood of the victims was still warm before Israel had done anything, had responded in any way at all. We saw on the streets outside the Israeli embassy in London, fireworks being fired, uh, Israelis, Jews terrified of simply going to pay their respects at the embassy. We saw Turkish flags, we saw Muslims praying. What were they, what were they praying about? Were they praying for the, the safety and uh, the, the safe return of the hostages? Uh, I don't, who knows? 
Who knows? We no, don't have a we do know in we, Australia. Well, we don't we don't have the windows into men's souls. No. But uh, those the flying of a Palestinian flag within hours of a, an attack as horrific as that, the most horrific attack on Jews since the Holocaust, was plainly a celebration of terrorism, not a protest against Israeli policy towards Palestine. It, just in terms of the timing. And that seemed to me that seems to, to me obvious. Once two or three weeks have elapsed and there's a sort of strong Israeli response, then sure, I can I can see that flying a Palestinian flag would starts to become it starts to revert to the sort of status status, status quo ante. Um, but the, that was the um, uh, that was the image or the video I think that the my my statement sort of went with, and I still stand by. And not only did I think it was true at the time, I think it's become truer and more accurate with every hour that passes in every major city across the Western yes. world. It's hard we, to we, we, we have seen these tensions being replicated. We, we've, mm. And just look at the numbers. I mean, we have, you know, um, the, the percentage of Brits who, who do not think that Hamas is a terrorist organization is about 6%. The percentage of Londoners who think that Hamas is not a terrorist organization is 15%. That is to say, in a, country, a city of roughly 10 million, 1.5 million people think that what Hamas did on October the 7th to pregnant mothers, to babies, to children, to Holocaust survivors, uh, was not terror. 1.5 million. Now, where, do they, where does anti-Semitism come from? George Orwell has a famous essay on this, anti-Semitism in England, I think he does record that the English are not free of anti-Semitism. We've, we've had it, shamefully, we had it, we expelled the Jews for 400 years from the 13th century to the 17th century and Cromwell brought them back. We're not completely free of it, but we have not for centuries seen the levels of open anti-Semitic abuse on the streets of our capital and all over the country, um, but particularly in our capital that we've seen in, in, in recent weeks. And it's shameful. We should be ashamed of it. This is why I was so proud to sign uh, the October Declaration, which Laura Dodsworth and Toby Young and others put together uh, a few days ago, in response to this a shocking letter by 4,000 celebrities that, uh, that, that, that cited the plight of the population of, of Gaza being used as political uh, military pawns by Hamas, uh, though they didn't point that out, uh, but were completely silent on the terrorist atrocities of October the 7th. I mean, this was extraordinary. And, and so there has been a response to that, and that letter, I think it's gathered nearly 30, 40,000 mm. uh, signatures. And, um, and so, you, you know, I, I think, um, no, so I stand by the comment. I, there was a tantrum about it in the student newspapers, but that's a fairly routine occurrence for me. If you're one of the very few out-of-the-closet conservatives at Cambridge, you just, you know, and, you've, and, and it's been a slow news week, then you just, that's what you do. You go, you don't go investigating. <laughs> you don't go looking for stories. You just open up Twitter and look down, uh, you'll look down Dr. Orr's uh, Twitter account and find something. And, and this is what happened. I mean, you know, it's, it's these, these outrages are so confected. Um, you know, it'll be a bored editor or a disgruntled colleague or student will look for something, send it, send it in or send it to the affected the, 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 the society, and in this case, I think it was the, the Muslim or Arab or Palestinian uh, student society. And you know, uh, did you, you know, read this tweet? Are you offended by it? Are you hurt by it? Yes, of course we are. Right, and then so now this, the story starts to come together. 
and then there's you know it's published and then it's sort of try to get some action uh, online and then you sort of you know, write to write to doctoral's faculty does the university know about this how do how, how, how could students possibly attend lectures when he's saying things like this? And so, and it just gets confected. This is a sort of what my friend Doug Stokes calls the grievance industrial complex. <laughs> um, uh, you know, it's just yeah. sort of whipped up, and then the, you know, then the mail will get hold of it, or, or someone will, you know, some tabloid will get hold of it, and then the anti woke brigade get on board. And so you have this sort of woke anti woke dynamic, and and it just gets so boring, so boring. And I, I mean, I try to ignore it as much like, as much as I can in the university. To its great credit, let's me ignore it. I haven't had any trouble at all. A few, a few conversations here and there, but uh, those conversations have always ended with the reassurance that the University of Cambridge respects the freedom of its academics to say uh, whatever they want within the law, uh, even if what they say may cause controversy. Um, so I feel, and I, I'm not sure that's the case in Harvard or Princeton, or I don't know if it is in the case in Australian universities, but. You know, I feel free in a place like Cambridge to say what I want. I mean, I mean, I know that there are likely to be tantrums, but if you're if you're used to them and you know how the game works, it's hard to get terribly bothered by them. Um, there was a, an, an amazing lecture earlier in the week by the great Peter Thiel in Oxford, and one of Peter's brilliant points is that this whole woke anti woke dynamic is well, it's partly ressentiment in the Nietzschean sense. It's this sort of sense of you know, I'm, I'm disempowered and impoverished. How can I kind of get up in the world? Well, I can, you know, you know if, I've, if, I'm, if, if I'm in a very competitive workplace and I can, you know, there's 10 people fighting for one, one promotion and I can get rid of three of them through doing some grievance archaeology on Twitter. I mean, of course I'm going to do it. <laughs> I'm going to love cancel culture. That's a kind of subtle point. So there's ressentiment, but Peter's point is it's, there's divertissement as well. It, diversity is a diversion strategy. It's very subtle. The opportunity cost of constantly having to go at the pace of the slowest kid in the class, or the most psychologically fragile kid in the class. You know, even if you win, even if you win against the woke, you've lost so much time, you've lost so much energy. I mean, it's, 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 just, it's just so demeaning, isn't it? I think, trying to what satisfaction can one get from winning arguments in the public square that no men are actually men and women are actually women and men can't become women and women can't become men? I mean, what, how does, you know, <laughs> what sort of intellectual satisfaction are you going to get from that? You've got victory, but at what price? You've been very generous with your time. I admire your mind, I admire your good humour and your graciousness. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me, John. Thank you for listening to Conversations with John Anderson. For further content, visit johnanderson.net.au. If you enjoy this podcast, please leave a rating and a review in iTunes. It helps other listeners find us.